let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 14. I'm really glad to be studying the words of and actions of Jesus, aren't you? I thoroughly enjoyed our times in, time in Romans chapter 9 for a few weeks, but I have to say, I'm always glad to get back to a study of my Savior, Jesus Christ. I heard someone say one time, I think it was Mark Dever, he said, whenever a pastor goes, first goes to a church, he needs to preach one of the Gospels. Because, number one, everyone loves Jesus, and number two, hardly anyone wants to argue with the words and actions of Jesus. And uh, everything that Jesus says and does here, boy, it's, it's so great. It's so simple, but it's deep. It's very theological, but it's very applicable. And just hearing the story and the flow of Jesus' life, it warms the cockles of my heart. I know that's true for you as well. Today, Matthew is putting a marker in our minds, another marker to indicate to us that the old is coming to an end, and in Jesus there is a new beginning. I've entitled my sermon, The End and the Beginning, because that's what Matthew is giving us here. The end of an era... The death of the final old covenant prophet and the beginning of the new era in Jesus Christ. This would have been important for Matthew because he was a Jew. And if you remember many months ago as we studied the beginning of Matthew, this gospel is written at least with a Jewish audience in mind. If you've read your New Testament, you know that early on this was a little bit of a struggle for the early church. That, that transition from Judaism to Christianity, that wasn't easy, especially for those who were initially practicing Jews and then later Christ's followers. So Matthew points out from time to time that the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, was coming to its rightful conclusion. Now, that's what this passage is about, and we're going to read this story, we're going to learn this story. That's primarily what we're going to do, is just walk through this in sort of narrative form. We're going to walk through this story and and read it and learn it. And then for those of you who are note takers toward the end, I'm going to give you just a couple of thoughts that we can hang our, uh, our minds on and remember about the new covenant. All right, Matthew chapter 14. I'm going to read the first 12 verses there. Matthew 14, beginning in verse 1. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. And he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead. That that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be done. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter given to the girl, she brought it to her mother, and his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. May God bless the reading of His Word. History is sloppy. By that I mean, I think 
We like to have categories or concrete eras of history, but it never fits really as neatly as we'd like them to. If someone were to ask, for example, when was the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, someone might answer, well, it started in the 1930s with the invention of the flying shuttle. This is the, the beginning of the mechanization of, of making textiles. Another person might say, no, it was later on, it was in the 1760s when they evolved the flying shuttle and created what's called the spinning jenny. This is, I think, what we see all the time in those, those old paintings, the spinning jenny. That's when production really took off. Still, another person might come along and say, no, the invention of the cotton gin by Eli Whitney, that was the beginning of the mechanization of production. That was the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. Well, the reality is all of those things and many more things that all led to the mechanization and industrialization of the world. All these different industries, not just relating to textiles, but metals and electricity and chemicals and agriculture and mining and so forth. History is not as concrete as we would want it to be. The same thing can be said about the Reformation. When was the beginning of the Reformation? Oh, it was, of course, what we're going to celebrate here at the end of the month. Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the door of the Schlosskirche in Wittenberg, October 31st, 1517, right? But there are many other things that happened as well. What about what happened before Luther? What, what about the things that happened that caused Luther to do what he did? Albrecht striking a deal with the Pope, sending out Tetzel to sell indulgences. Who can forget Jan Hus, who lived a century earlier? When Luther started his protest and started to object to what the Catholic Church was doing, they, they didn't call them Lutherans, they called them Hussites. So they, they looked back and connected what Luther was doing to something before. What about 100 years before that, when, when Wycliffe said the people in the congregation need the Bible in their own language, and he translated the Bible? Now, history doesn't happen exactly in concrete eras. Eli Whitney, when he put that last screw on his new device, he didn't say, and thus begins the Industrial Revolution. Luther thought he was just engaging in some friendly debate among some colleagues when he nailed the 95 Theses on the door of the church at Wittenberg. History is sloppy. These events are not concrete in their start, but rather they are really more like markers that indicate a transition from one era to the next. Well, the same could be said about the death of John the Baptist. It was a marker, an important marker. It points us to many other markers, many other truths that, that tell us that this is the end of an era and the beginning of a new era. There is overlap in the Old Covenant and Old Testament era and the New Testament era. In the death of John the Baptist, the, the Old Covenant is coming to its proper end, its proper conclusion. You could say the same thing about other events that happen, the birth of Jesus. It's a marker that tells us the, the old is coming to an end. You could say the same thing about the Lord's table, right? Jesus, after all, says, this is the new covenant in my blood. This is a marker of the end of the old and the beginning of the new. You could say it began with Jesus' resurrection or Jesus' ascension to the throne or perhaps the beginning of the church in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost. All of these things are markers and give us truths that indicating, indicating this age there's an era shift. There's a shift from one era to the next. It's not as clean and neat as we'd like it to be, but it is a marker and tells us something important about the end of one era and the beginning of another. Tomorrow when we have our main worship service, I'm 
going to have them read a lot about a, out of Hebrews chapter 7 and 8, and Hebrews 13 says this, and speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Now, the language there of the writer of Hebrews tells us that it didn't just end and the new covenant begin. There was some overlap. There was something that was destined for obsolescence. There was the destined for, uh, to fade away, and this other one had already started, and there was a little bit of an overlap. The Old Covenant, the Old Testament was coming to an end. Jesus was replacing it with something better, the New Covenant or New Testament. Well, a covenant, just so those of you that don't know, those of you that can follow this, the covenant is a terms of relationship. You know what covenants are. We have homeowners covenants, neighborhood covenants. These are definitions and guidelines that define relationships, right? Promises by both parties to, to do things a certain way. In the Old Testament, God made a number of covenants with different people. God made a covenant with, Abraham, with Adam, with uh, Noah, with Abraham, with David. God also made a covenant with Moses, and by so doing, the, the people of Israel, all the people of Israel. The central document for that covenant, that Mosaic covenant, the Mosaic covenant was the Ten Commandments. Application is the rest of the, the books of the law. They call it the books of the law, the books of the covenant, the, the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. And the rest of the Old Testament, and this is a good way to sort of think of the Bible, the rest of the Old Testament, you have that, that covenant central document, the Ten Commandments. You have the explanation and application of, of those Ten Commandments upon the people. That's the first five books of the Bible and the rest of the New Testament, or excuse me, the rest of the Old Testament is just a description of how the people lived in that covenant, how they lived in that relationship with God. And something we need to understand, and when Jesus comes on the scene there and He's preaching and teaching and walking over the hillsides of uh, hills of Galilee and then Judea, the people lived under that Old Covenant. Even Jesus lived under that Old Covenant. They were to obey those laws, they were to hold those feasts, make those sacrifices, obey those rules. Most importantly, they were to look forward to whom that covenant promised, namely the Messiah. They were to obey the truths, and if you read the Old Testament, you find this very quickly, it's not just about obedience and, and, and following rules, it's about a relationship. That's what a covenant, after all, is. People were to follow God and love God with their hearts. So it said very early in the covenant. The purpose of the covenant, again, is relationship, not just a random list of rules and doctrines. It's relationship with God Almighty. And they were to believe in their hearts, God Almighty, that He had promised a coming Messiah. They were to prepare their hearts and anticipate, look forward to the coming Messiah whom God would provide. But what did the people of Israel do in that Old Testament, Old Covenant era? Sometimes they just abandoned the covenant altogether, right? Again and again, we see examples, especially during the time of Judges and then later during the, the prophets, the latter prophets, the people just rejected God in an outright way and followed after other gods. They just rejected the covenant altogether. Other times they would... They would follow the externals of the covenant. They would, they would do the, the laws. They would follow the, 
the rules and regulations, but in their hearts, or maybe even in a sort of syncretistic way, they would, they would go after other gods and other desires. They would pursue other things. Other times, most notoriously in the time of Jesus, they turned the covenant into a ladder, the rungs of which you climb in order to save yourself and merit eternity with God. No longer about relationship, but all about performance, personal works. They had lost sight of the purpose of the covenant, which is a relationship. They had lost sight of the hope of the covenant, the coming Messiah, Emmanuel. You know, because of these failures and through the ages, through the different times of Israel's history, because of these failures, God would, would send them prophets. Prophets would come and the prophets would call out to repent and go back into covenant relationship with God and to believe God's Word and to live by God's Word and to love God with their hearts and to anticipate and look forward to God's Messiah. The greatest of these prophets, according to Jesus, was John the Baptist. This man, we studied him many months ago, more than a year ago, as a matter of fact. This man called people to repent, and he called them to prepare their hearts for the Messiah, just like all the prophets. John, actually, we learned back then, John was actually a fulfillment of ancient predictions God had given other prophets, that that just before the Messiah arrived, a a prophet who was similar to another prophet by the name of Elijah, an Elijah-like prophet, would arrive, and he would come, and he would call people to repentance and anticipation to make ready their hearts for the Messiah. John gathered to himself disciples, much like Jesus would later on. These disciples first identified, identified with the truth, the doctrine that John preached. They identified with the activity, the, the attitude, the love that was displayed in John's ministry. And they identified themselves with one another, and they identified themselves with John the Baptist. They marked their unity with that man, with one another, with that message of the coming Messiah. They marked that commitment by being immersed in the river, the River Jordan. That's why they called him John the Immerser or John the Baptist. John the Baptist preached, called people to live in repentance and faith. He called them to look for that blessed hope, the the peace. He called out sin. He called out even the sin of, of public officials. And in our story here, Herod, he calls out the sin of Herod. Now, this is nothing new under the sun, right? People with power and money often use it to their own advantage. It doesn't seem to matter what political party. It doesn't seem to matter what era. You know, I think the sort of fairy tale picture of, of American politics is that all of our presidents were just good young men and just did the right things until recently. I was reading a book this week about World War II and the death of FDR. You know, he died within uh, a year, I think, of the end of the war, he died with his mistress. Wife Eleanor wasn't even around. Presidents and kings and leaders have been foul since the beginning of time. And John the Baptist had no problem calling out the immorality, 
the gross immorality of Herod. Matthew says there, at that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. Now, this is Herod Antipas, A-N-T-I-P-A-S. This is not Herod the Great. Herod the Great we met during the time of Jesus' birth. Herod the Great is the one that killed all the young boys in Bethlehem, and uh, Herod the Great, not long after that, died. One of his sons, actually all of his sons had some sort of level of, of leadership, but one of his sons was named Antipas. And he was given rule over Galilee, and through a marriage, he was given rule over an area called Perea. Perea included areas where John the Baptist preached. Perea was an area that John the Baptist was involved in and where he would baptize people. Now, we can get kind of caught up in the weeds here about Herod and what he'd done. This, this sort of reads like a Downton Abbey episode or any other soap opera that you might watch. It's so convoluted. It's so crazy. It's hard to keep up with what all is happening here. So I tried to reduce it so we kind of can understand, at least follow a little bit of the drama and why John would want to preach against that kind of immorality. What you need to know is this guy, Herod Antipas, was, was married. He had married this lady, and he was, had wandering eyes, and he began to look around, and he found this young lady that he began to fall in love with. But there was a problem. That young lady was uh, two things. She was his niece, and she was married to his brother. See, I told you it was going to be like a Downton Abbey episode. And I don't, think, I don't know if it was his direct brother. Maybe it was his half-brother. I don't know. But Herod is falling in love with his sister-in-law slash niece slash brother, half-brother's wife, something like that. So Herod, what he did, he was successful at convincing. His, his brother had sort of grown tired of the lady, so he, he convinced him to, to, to let her go, to divorce her so that he could marry her. And so that's what he did. He divorced his wife, and he, and he married his niece and former sister-in-law. Just to make it more confusing, she, her original name was something different, but she changed her name to Herodias, I suppose because she's related to everybody. I guess she could just call herself Herodias. Well, the, the Herodian dynasty, Hasmonean dynasty is what they call it, they, they fancied themselves with Jews, and, and technically speaking, they did have some Jewish blood. They were relatives of Jews, and they loved, because they had been given by the Roman government some level of authority in the Jewish areas, they loved to play up this connection. They, they loved to capitalize. Maybe it gave them some, some sort of political uh, right to capitalize on this idea that they were Jews too, and they liked the, the idea. I don't know that they were really practicing. I think they... Um, affiliated with the Sadducees. The Sadducees, by the way, were the liberals. They weren't the Bible believers. They weren't the conservative ones. That was the Pharisees. The Sadducees were the ones that were sort of took a little looser view, and they, uh, they associated themselves with the Sadducees. They, they felt themselves to be Jews. They fancied themselves to be Jews. And so John the Baptist took that opportunity to say, you know what, there should be nothing like this named among God's people. You can't do this. It's incestuous. It's wrong. Your divorce was based on wrong premises. It's, it's lust. It's wrong. And so he would use, I think he would use Herod as an example of the kind of lust and incest that was prominent in that day. And so Herod and his wife, sister, niece, third cousin, whatever, 
they had John captured and put in prison. Verse 3, for Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias. And I think that says for the sake of Herodias, I think what that tells us is that Herod didn't really care about John the Baptist. He was preaching against him, but Herod just said whatever. But his wife was like, you've got to do something about that guy. You can just hear this. You have to do something about that guy. He's preaching against us again. There's all these people who don't like us because of John the Baptist, and she was sort of nagging him to do something about it. And I think that's what this phrase means, for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had been saying to them, it is not lawful for you to have her. It's not lawful for you to be married to her. And though he, meaning Herod, and though Herod wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. So there was one thing that you find out in the, in the New Testament in that first century era. The people who had been given rule in the Roman government, the, the, the thing that they feared most was some sort of uprising. We see, we'll see this later with Pontius Pilate. I mean, they, just, they were dreadful. I, I think the Roman government must, must come down hard. This empire must come down hard on their leaders who allowed insurrection to rise up. So the thing they feared the most was insurrection, and Herod was no different. He did not want some kind of big protest, some big problem, some big insurrection, and he was worried because there were so many people who liked John the Baptist and believed him to be a prophet. There were so many people who followed him. Herod was afraid that if I kill this guy, I mean, there's going to be an insurrection on my hands. So he was afraid of this. So all that to say, Herod had interest in John. And we'll see later, he was sorry that, to put John to death. But it was not because he, he believed John's theology or followed John or had interest in the doctrines that John was teaching. He had interest only in a political way. He was worried for his own hind end. He did not want to get punished by the Roman Empire. Verse 6, when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. You get this picture here. It's going on. This would have been a party, probably mostly men. Again, this would be a huge frat party. Everyone's drunk. And Herod has his daughter. This is probably not his daughter because it doesn't say it's his daughter, it says it's Herodias' daughter, so it's probably his stepdaughter or niece, third cousin. A young girl, probably in her early teens. And he calls her to come out and dance seductively for the men there. And I don't think you can read it any other way. I think it's clear that that's what was going on here. There was some sort of sexual element to this. And I say that as a father of of five daughters, I've been to many ballet recitals. Most guys aren't into that. Those are pretty boring for most men. So I don't think this is just a ballet recital. I don't think this is just some sort of formal dancing. I think this is something sexual and seductive, incestuous, pedophilia, the, the thoughts of pedophilia. I'm sure were in the minds of all these men. They loved it. And Herod, in the middle of this party, when that all happened, see, 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 well, everyone's liking this. And so he boastfully and loudly calls out that he'll give her anything that she wants. That's verses 8 to 10. Well, I suppose this girl's mother is there nearby. Because when Herod says this, Herodias nudges her daughter and says, tell him to give you John the Baptist's head on a platter. Now, you just imagine this party. I, I think this is pretty typical, the pattern of human activity. You go from being an inebriated, drunk, 
alcoholism to sexual acts to now violent acts. And it's all intermingled in this horrible, gross series of events. And so that's what she does. She asks her stepdad for the head of John the Baptist, bound by his words, and he's sorry, again, not because he likes John's doctrine or he likes his preaching, but because he's afraid that he might be in trouble if he does this. But he has to do it because he's bound by his words at this party, and he sends his executioners down. They cut off the head of John the Baptist. You can just imagine that poor girl having to bring in a platter with the still bleeding head of John the Baptist and handing it to her father in front of everybody to the cheers and glory of Herod. The story ends there at the very last verse. His disciples came and took the body and buried it. And they went and told Jesus. That's the end of John the Baptist. A sad indignified, gross story. And the question is, why would Matthew put this here? What's the purpose of this story right here? As some of you know, uh, my family just recently entered a new era ourselves. Our eldest daughter began attending college in California. And uh, when she left... It was really busy, and they were sort of down to business, and we were kind of excited and thrilled about what was happening, and I took everyone to the airport. We said goodbyes, and of course, because of today, there's all these restrictions, so only Becky could take her to college, and it was very busy the whole time they were there and getting her in her room, and uh, it was hard to really have any kind of alone time for Becky, and so it was just kind of down to business, and they took care of things, and they said goodbye, and and before you know it, uh, she had started school. A lot of people were asking me, oh, man, it's your first daughter. I bet you just wept great tears of grief. I was like, you know, we were pretty busy, and I'm not super emotional, so I didn't cry. I, 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 maybe I should be ashamed about that, but I just I, I didn't, I wasn't really affected by it. I'm happy for her. I'm excited for her, and I'm sad that she's not with us, but, you know, this is life. Well, a few weeks ago, I went to California. My plan was to meet with some pastors and and to attend a church that I've been wanting to attend and see how they do their membership process and uh, meet with some other pastors. Some former church members were having, being married in Southern California, so I wanted to go to that wedding a well. And, of course, I thought, well, this would be a great time to surprise Chloe, to see her and spend a couple days with her over a weekend and then come back. So I did that. It was great. Uh, Chloe and I spent uh, several days together driving around Southern California. And it got to the evening that I was to depart and I drove her to near her dorms, and I got out, and boy, there was a lump the size of a cantaloupe in my throat. And I thought to myself, well, I can't cry because I don't want her to feel bad or feel emotional or whatever. And I just, this lump in my throat, this giant lump, and I embraced her, and I said, well, see you, Chloe. And as I held her there tightly, I felt her start to sob. And Daddy lost it at that point. The tears just flowed out. I was driving back to the airport, and I was so sad. I was so depressed because I couldn't get out of my mind. This is the beginning of a lot of goodbyes. My other daughters, at some point, all these girls, there's going to be some creep who wants to marry them, and I'm going to have to say goodbye then. I was just depressed going all the way back to the airport. 
I talked to my sister, who's a little bit older than me. She has six grandkids now. And I complained to her how hard this was, and was it that hard for her? And she said, you know, John, I know it's really hard. But she said, the next era is way better. It's way better. It doesn't get worse, John. It gets better. I think, in a way, this is Matthew's point. This is the death of the last prophet. This is the death of the Old Testament era. You think of all that wonderful history, all those faithful people, all those songs and stories and victories of days gone by. Think of those many years of feasting and joy and national pride of of Jerusalem and Zion and the temple and the worship and the music and the, the fellowship. You think of those pilgrimages that people would take to Jerusalem. Jesus Himself took part in those pilgrimages. The land of Israel, the food of Israel, the old priests, the young warriors, the faithful kings and unfaithful kings, all of that drawing to a close. And here we have the greatest and last of all the prophets being murdered in indignity for the pride of a foul, incestuous king. Sad? Yes. The disciples of John, I think, paint this downtrodden picture. But Matthew's point, I believe, is that it doesn't get worse from here. It gets better. You notice where the disciples of John go. They go from the greatest prophet in the Old Testament era to the Messiah, the greatest prophet of all time. The Messiah has come. He mediates a a better covenant. It's enacted on better promises, and He sits in that place of intercession forever, unlike all those priests and prophets and kings of the old covenant. Yes, it's sad that the old is ending, that the old is coming to a close, but there's something way better in store for the people because Jesus is beginning to enact the new covenant. Well, Let me very briefly give us a few thoughts to hang our minds on as we consider the transition from old to new. These don't really, uh, in a structural way, come from the passage, but you're going to see it does emanate from what Matthew's saying and what all Matthew is doing here in, in his gospel. Number one, the new and old covenants, different but the same. These covenants are different in some ways, but they're the same in some ways. These two major covenants we can, we can emphasize, and as you look at these covenants, you can emphasize and look at both their, their similarity and their dissimilarity. In the new kingdom, in the new covenant, things are going to be different in, in many ways, and Matthew's going to start to open up this, open this idea up to us. But in some ways, they are no different. The Old Covenant, for instance, the promises hang on on faith in God's Word, faith in the coming Messiah that God had told them about in His Word. They must trust and anticipate and look forward to that Messiah. In the New Covenant, the Messiah has come. But they are the same. They are different in that way, but they're the same in the fact that they're both looking at the Messiah, right? Right? They're both taking God at His Word. Faith is is no different. It's not like faith is now something completely different. Faith is the same thing. This is the point that Paul makes in Romans chapter 4. He he points about justification by faith. He points us not to some New Testament saint. He points us to Abraham. 
who believed God, who believed God's Word, and who believed God's Word in particular about the coming Messiah. So the same, but also different. In the Old Covenant, God calls His people to follow and be governed by a law that was written first on tablets and then expanded on in the Torah. In the New Covenant, the law is written on the hearts of God's people as the Spirit indwells them and makes Scripture come alive with conviction and desire and enabling. Both covenants, God's people are called to be godly, to be holy like God, but they're different. And in the New Covenant, God enables us with the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit to produce spiritual fruit. In the Old Covenant, you had men who were prophets, priests, and kings, each representing an an aspect of, of leadership and mediation for the people of God. They were to guide the people according to the integrity of their hearts. In the New Covenant, there are no prophets and priests and kings, but there is Jesus who perfectly fulfills all of those roles in Himself. He is the perfect mediator and the only mediator. Yet it's similar in the fact that these prophets, priests, and kings pointed to Jesus Christ, who is the greatest of all three of these things, prophet, priest, and king. In the Old Covenant, God set His affection and attention on the people of Israel, the nation that He had chosen. In the New Covenant, Matthew was very quick to point out and even concludes his gospel by telling us the fact that God's people will be all over the world and from many different nations. But it's the same in that God has a chosen people to be a royal priesthood, to be a nation of people who are to declare the mercies and excellencies of God. And in fact, I would say this is Matthew's emphasis here, this transition that we're marking here. I think Matthew is giving us a, a transition in Jesus' ministry or the transition from, from Jewish crowds and, and, and ministering on the hillside to these, these crowds of Jewish people and in the synagogues to Jewish people. Now he begins to minister primarily to his disciples. It's amazing. Uh, Jesus does a lot of talking. It is a lot of miracles. He feeds the the 5,000, then he feeds the 4,000. But in terms of instruction and teaching, you don't see him at any more synagogues. After this passage, you don't see him going and, and battling it out and talking with the Pharisees and the scribes and explaining to the Jewish people. The only time that we see that again, really, in earnest, is when he gets to the Temple Mount right before his death. It seems like most of the rest of his ministry, he's focused on the twelve, and these twelve will be like the, the heads of new tribes, the, the, the tribes of the earth, and these twelve will be sent out to take the gospel all across the world. I think this is what Matthew is trying to point out here. This is a transition from the old to the new, and the new is much different, and Jesus begins to focus his attention now on his disciples. The covenants are different, but both of them preach the same salvation by faith in God and His Messiah. Jesus is now moving away from the old covenant. He's moving away from Israel, the old Israel, the nationalistic Israel, to the new Israel, spiritual Israel. Now, we know because of our study of Romans 9, 10, and 11, we know that one day there will be a physical Israel, physical Israel. Many people will respond and come back. But the point of both covenants is to call us to Jesus Christ. 
And that's what I want us to see in the next couple of points. Number two, in Jesus, the old covenant ends. In Jesus, the old covenant ends. Jesus said, you'll remember in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, that He said, I came not to abolish the law. I came not to abolish the old covenant, but I came to fulfill the law. Of course, that means on the surface he's going to obey the rules. He's going to do what the law asks him to do, but I think it's much more than that. He would be not just under it, but he would bring it to its rightful and proper conclusion. I like to compare this process in a sort of a weak way. It's, this is sort of a weak illustration, but I like to compare it to someone with a driver's permit. They have a lot of rules and legislation to which they must answer, laws about who's in the car, how old the passengers are, if they're family or not family, If they're under a certain age, they have to take driver's lessons. But once they complete all of this, they have fulfilled the law. And when they fulfill the law, they don't cast it aside and abolish it as though it's nothing and extract it from their memory, all the truths and principles they learned under that law. But neither do they live under the same restrictions they lived under when they had their driver's permit. Rather, they've come into a new relationship with driving and the law because they have fulfilled those laws. Those laws have come to their rightful conclusion, and a new era has begun. So we heard that in that passage I already quoted and we read earlier from Hebrews. The old law, the old covenant in their day was becoming obsolete. And I believe what is indicated there is that What I said earlier, it's not just one neat day precisely when the old covenant came to an end and a new day began and a new covenant. There was overlap. There was a a, a time when the old covenant was fading and fading and becoming, as the writer of Hebrews says, becoming obsolete. It was not obsolete less. It was not obsolete at that time that the writer of Hebrews wrote, but it was about to become obsolete. There was some overlap. Jesus sent his disciples, and after he ascended to heaven, the disciples went out and actually found people who had not really understood or heard about Jesus, and they were followers of John the Baptist. They were still old covenant people. I don't believe that had they died at that point that God would have sent them hell because, after all, Jesus had come. No, they had never heard the message, and God brought them the message, and they, they moved from old covenant faith to a new covenant faith. They moved from looking forward to the Messiah to looking back at the Messiah and having faith in him in that way. So there was this overlap Jesus was fulfilling the old and bringing the old to its proper end. So, in Jesus, the old covenant comes to its end, or it begins this process of becoming obsolete. By the way, just as an apologetic, this is something that all Christians, maybe they don't even think about it too much, but this is something that all Christians, if they grow up in a pretty normal, typical evangelical church, they understand that to to some extent. And the reason I say this in terms of apologetics. Apologetics is when you explain your faith to unbelievers. In terms of apologetics, it's important to remember this because every once in a while you'll have someone open their Bible to some Old Testament weird passage about mixing linen and cotton and say, well, if you believe the Bible, you have to do this. Well, we automatically understand. Well, that era is over. That was an era that that did things, that provided things, that pointed people to the gospel, but Jesus completed that. And we understand that. It's not that we can't learn from the Old Testament, but that era is over. We live in a new covenant, in a different relationship. It's very easy to explain that. So don't be intimidated by people or news anchors or people who come on TV. It seems like every season they come along and they say, oh, if Christians were really true to the Bible, they would make sacrifices or they would do this or they believe in a theocracy or they believe they ought to make war and they're justified at killing babies and killing people. 
No, we don't live in that covenant anymore. We live in the new covenant. Jesus brought that old covenant. We understand this. Jesus brought that old covenant to an end. And I think that's what Matthew is trying to get across. This old covenant with the death of the last prophet is coming to an end. Jesus is transitioning of this ministry to his disciples, and this era is coming to an end. Number three in Jesus, the new covenant begins. I think the closing out of that era was sad, even for Jesus. Look down at verse 13. Now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. And I don't think for one second Jesus worried about John's eternity or wondered if he'd ever see John again or if John was in heaven with God. I think the, the mourning here, the sadness or the desire to be alone here was for the loss of the last prophet, the closing of the old And as we'll see later in Matthew, I think it was Jesus contemplating what price He personally would need to pay in order for the old to be completed and for the new to begin. Jesus knew what suffering He had to face. He knew with sadness that this old thing that He had grown up in, these customs, these traditions, these feasts, He knew that those were coming to an end. And I think it made Jesus somewhat sad. But the old was flawed, or you could say it had an inherent built-in weakness. For one thing, it had impermanent, immoral, flawed men as leaders, as the priests and kings and prophets, and they would provide daily these animal sacrifices for sin, including their own sin. Jesus came along. He offered Himself for sin, the perfect sacrifice once and for all. And thus, Jesus would initiate the new covenant, as Hebrews says, based on better promises. And so, though it is sad to see the degrading, shameful death of the last prophet, what it really means is that the best is yet to come. What Jesus was going to do, really, in the second half of the gospel, training up his men, starting the new covenant in his blood, as he says, these actions will become the centerpiece of human history. And so we look at the death of John, and there is sadness, but we rejoice. John's death is sad and tragic, but it's a commentary on vile human race, but Christ was already working to the initiation of this much better new covenant. Isn't that great? And so we focus our attention on Christ. We place our trust in Christ. We're Christians, people of Christ in a new covenant that Christ inaugurated. Few people I've put it better than St. Patrick, his famous prayer, Trinitarian prayer, but let me read one part of it. It's probably the most familiar part. Patrick prayed, Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right, Christ on my left, Christ when I lie down, when I sit down, Christ when I arise. Christ in the heart of every man who thinks me, thinks of me, Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of me, Christ in the eye of every Christ in the in every eye that sees me, Christ in every hear that hears me. Those of us who have been placed in this new covenant, we are so grateful, we're so thankful, we rejoice. Though it's tragic, though it's hard, the old has ended, though there's hardship even in this new covenant, we still rejoice because we have our Christ. Let's pray that we would live lives spreading that joy.
Father, we thank you for your truth. We thank you for Christ. We thank you that you've brought him to initiate this new covenant. We thank you that you have, by your grace, provided for at least most of us in this room, you provided the faith we need to trust in Christ, to surrender all, to, to follow him, and to make Christ our all. As always, I pray for those who maybe have not done that, watching or here in this room, we pray that you would call them to that complete surrender, that desire to make Christ their all. Lord, all of us, we want to live with that joy, the joy of Jesus Christ. No matter what's happening around us, pray that we would be a testimony. I think of John the Baptist there, probably happy that he could die knowing that Christ, the Savior, had arrived. John, really the first martyr, because it was hearing of Christ, that because of Christ, that he was put to death. And so, Lord, we pray that you would bless us with that kind of joy, that kind of willingness and happiness in these days. Help us grow in Christ as we think of these things. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.